The What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. A Guatemalan man named Nazario was a farmer who was facing violence from local gangs. They harassed him and even threatened his life, so after talking to his wife, Nazario made the difficult decision to leave her and his two-year-old son behind and travel to the United States to seek asylum. He took his five-year-old daughter, Philomena, with him. The two were extremely close. She, She went everywhere that he went. So they embarked on this treacherous journey together from their town in Guatemala to San Diego County. Once they arrived at the border, they were apprehended by agents and Philomena was ripped from him as the two were separated. Nazario was told that he would be reunited with her in days, but as is the case with thousands of other families, days turned to weeks. Distraught, Nazario wept daily and was depressed because he didn't even know where his daughter was. Meanwhile, Philomena was taken from San Diego County and shipped all the way up to New York. She was equally distraught and crying daily. After nearly two weeks in prison, Nazario withdrew his asylum claim and was transferred to another facility. It would take nearly three more weeks before he was sentenced for illegal entry and given time served before being sent back to Guatemala. His daughter, Filomena, didn't go with him. Now, the family would eventually be reunited on August 6th, but that was nearly three months after Nazario and Filomena were originally arrested at the border in 2018. Unfortunately, this story is far from the exception, and thousands of families have been traumatized by the ever-shifting policies and under-resourced infrastructure that exists at the border. This is episode 8 of the What Would It Take podcast. Join me as we explore the question, What would it take to truly love our neighbors? Listen in. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Students in high school, college, or graduate school are invited to enter a Peace Essay Contest sponsored by Bethany Theological Seminary. This year's theme, Civil Resistance and Nonviolent Social Change in an Increasingly Virtual World. First prize is $2,000, and the deadline is May 15th. For details, email contactusatbethanyseminary.edu. Bethany Seminary, so that the world flourishes. We hear a lot of talk about the crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border, but what is true and what isn't? The truth is that while there are thousands of people crossing the U.S.-Mexico border, the overall numbers are similar to what we saw in 2019. Experts report that there is a seasonal rhythm to border crossings. From February to June, when the sun isn't as intense, we typically expect to see a surge in people trying to enter the United States. This seasonal surge is followed by an equally seasonal decrease in crossings that takes place in June and July, when the desert is much hotter and far deadlier. So while we are seeing a greater number of immigrants than we did, say, in 2019, the trends are similar to what we would expect for this period of the year. In 2020, the pandemic closed borders worldwide, which meant fewer crossings. With the increase in vaccinations and borders opening up, we're seeing travel increase as well. In addition, last March, President Trump enacted Title 42, which is a provision of the 1944 Public Health Act, 
and it allows immigrants to be summarily expelled without due process, providing they have no documentation. This likely delayed those who would have made the trek to the U.S. last year instead of deterring them completely. So so we're also witnessing the result of delayed demand rather than the elimination of demand altogether. And it's estimated that recidivism rates have drastically increased for illegal border crossings. I'm going to quote directly from an article in Vox magazine here. There's also a reason to believe the number of migrants encountered by Border Patrol overall is inflated. Title 42 created perverse incentives for single adults to attempt to cross the border multiple times. Before the pandemic, they might have been dissuaded from trying again for fear of facing criminal prosecution for illegal entry and disqualifying themselves from legal migration pathways such as asylum. But under the pandemic era process, they are merely fingerprinted, processed, and dropped off in Mexico without consequence. Customs and Border Patrol estimates that the resulting recidivism rate, the number of people who try to cross, get caught, and try again, is roughly 40%. By comparison, the recidivism rate was about 7% in fiscal year 2019. So, in short, while the number of migrants has indeed increased, when you factor in the pandemic, the trends of 2019, and the effects of Title 42, we're seeing migration levels that are similar to the trends that we saw under President Obama and the earlier years of President Trump. What has changed is the number of unaccompanied minors who are crossing the border. Single adults still make up about 71% of all illegal border crossings. But as of this recording, over 17,000 unaccompanied minors, most of them who are teenagers, are in the custody of Customs and Border Patrol. And an additional four to 500 unaccompanied minors arrive every day. It seems that Title 42, which the Biden administration has kept in place, is incentivizing families to send their children to the U.S. knowing that they won't be sent back, while other family members wait to cross in Mexico or their home countries. But why are people so desperate to get here? The Northern Triangle countries of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras have been hit hard in recent years by hurricanes that they're still recovering from. In addition, corruption and gang violence have created conditions that are unlivable for many, thus prompting families to make the trek north. Economic conditions are also driving the continued surge in migration. Many Central American farmers make their living growing coffee, but the market has become destabilized. In 2018, Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez said that the coffee crisis had plunged some 90,000 small farmers into extreme poverty in Honduras alone. Others also argue that the history of U.S. intervention in Central American politics has led to the governmental corruption and the growth in the drug trade that are fueling gang violence. They point to the CIA's covert operation to overthrow Guatemala's democratically elected president in 1954 and to America's intervention in El Salvador's civil war in the 1980s, along with President Obama's refusal in 2009 to label the ouster of Honduras' president as a military coup, even though soldiers dragged him out of bed in the middle of the night and sent him into exile in his pajamas. People that believe the U.S. policy is to blame also argue that the U.S. has propped up leaders which support U.S. business interests, and this has resulted in a toxic political environment that creates the conditions for violence and corruption to flourish. The truth is, these countries are struggling, and U.S. policy has had a lot to do with it. Natural disasters and market fluctuation are also playing roles in adding fuel to the fire, and the result is a cacophony of living conditions that are so untenable that thousands have been willing to risk deportation, 
separation from their children, violence, and even death just for the chance at a better life. These aren't people trying to game the system. These are desperate mothers, scared fathers, and anxious children doing the best they can to escape violence and poverty. They just want to live, yet instead of a safe haven, they're often met with abuse or worse. The Center for Disaster Philanthropy notes that since 1998, it is believed over 7,000 people have died while trying to make it to the border or while crossing. At least 227 people died in 2020 along the Arizona-Mexico border, making it the deadliest year there ever. And about 128 people trying to cross from Arizona died in 2018 and 144 died in 2019. There is so much more I could say about this issue, from the reports of abuse and neglect at the Border Patrol facilities that house minors, to the fact that from September of 2018 to May of 2019, six children died in Border Patrol custody. No one should come here seeking safety only to find death, especially not a child. But why should any of us care about this problem? Well, there's a strong gospel imperative to show mercy even to those we deem as the other. I could make a very generalized argument based upon Christian text and scripture here, but instead, indulge me as I read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw the man, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of this man, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Now, this is a powerful story that we're all familiar with. But in this context, I found something here that I hadn't picked up on before. Rather than telling the lawyer who his neighbors were, Jesus says, A neighbor is one who shows mercy. So go and show mercy. Folks, you may not be in a position to make or change U.S. immigration policies, but all of us can show mercy in our actions and our thoughts. Moreover, It is this belief in being a neighbor that must compel us to use the influence we have to make a change and address this problem. Thousands of people arrive at the U.S.-Mexico border every year, and they, too, need mercy.
if we are to take the text of Luke chapter 10 seriously, and I think we should, then we have a moral responsibility to be good neighbors and thus to show mercy with our words, with our actions, and first and foremost, perhaps, with our policies. So how do we make this happen? Well, we can start by supporting organizations that are working to provide aid and services to immigrants at the border. Humane Borders, or Fronteras Compasivas, offers humanitarian assistance through the development of water stations on routes commonly used by migrants with the sole goal of preventing deaths. It also develops informational resources about migrant deaths and accepts volunteers. RACES, the Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services, is a 501c3 nonprofit that promotes justice by providing free and low-cost legal services to underserved immigrant children, families, and refugees in Central and South Texas. RACES is the largest immigration nonprofit in Texas with offices in Austin, Corpus, Dallas, Fort Worth, and Houston. The American Friends Service Committee. This is a Quaker social justice organization doing human rights monitoring of migrant caravans and supporting shelters in Mexico. There are many other organizations that I have linked to in the show notes that you can consider contributing to and donating to or even volunteering with in order to do your part in showing mercy. They all need your help and they're all doing phenomenal work. So please check out that listing and figure out how you can plug into them. And if you're in a position of influence at a foundation or grant-making organization, consider not only how you might invest in organizations that are supporting immigrant rights and basic needs, but also how you might divest from organizations that are part of the immigration industrial complex. Defense companies, arms manufacturers, creators of surveillance equipment, construction companies, and many others are making a ton of money off of the continuing crisis at the border. This means that there are a lot of powerful people and organizations that have very little interest in solving the problems that are wrecking communities and tearing families apart. The crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border is very real, but it isn't fueled by the people seeking safety. It's fueled by decades of U.S. policy that has contributed to corruption and violence in much of Central and South America. It's fueled by inadequate funding of humanitarian systems which would provide the basic needs for migrants when they arrive. And it's fueled by a political apparatus that is fundamentally racist and xenophobic at its core. We have a moral imperative to be neighbors, and that means showing mercy, especially to those fleeing violence and inhumane living conditions. If we take this charge seriously, we can make it so that families aren't ripped apart, Men and women aren't abused or detained without basic legal or humanitarian services, and children aren't dying alone in cells and cages. So what would it take to truly love our neighbors? We have the answers. Now let's get to work. Thank you for listening to the What Would It Take podcast. To view the source material for this episode, check out the show notes. If you'd like to find more great content from Anabaptist World, visit anabaptistworld.org. And if you want to learn more about me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as Benjamin J. Tapper. Mm-hmm.